Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings comrades and welcome to the Eastern Border. Well, for one, I want to talk to you about something that's actually kind of my specialty, you know, because my first education, besides the history one and the PhD that I'm trying to get right now in journalism, is of philosophy. Because I believe that wisdom has value. Wisdom really makes you, it's not smarter, it's not like more clever, it's just something that just is. It's not about how much you know, it's about how well you use the things that you know. And I have to say that if it wasn't for my philosophy education, then I would probably wouldn't be making this podcast. So if someone's telling you that education and philosophy is a bad choice, well, yeah, it won't land you in a great job that pays well, but it will make you prepared enough for basically some place in your maybe mindset that allow you to make a job for yourself. And as I specialized in political philosophy, that was what I wrote my master's thesis after all, wanted to kind of talk about what fascism is. Because currently, you know, I've I've heard a lot of, again, rumors about how Ukrainians are Nazis and how everyone's like fascist. But there's a thing here. See, fascism doesn't come from Nazi Germany. Fascism is how Russia calls all of its ideological enemies. Because at that point, they were a socialist country. They called themselves a socialist country, at least. And, uh, hey, I won't get into fights right now with all the lefties and with all the tankies, because the USSR undoubtedly thought they were socialists, moving towards communism. For them, socialism was exactly what they were doing. They were socialist. And if you kind of think that that wasn't real socialism, well, then I'll get into arguments other time. But they decided to basically call the enemy, what they were fighting against in the World War II, fascists, because if they would call them Nazis, the National Socialists, then people might start seeing kind of, you know, the similarities between the Nationalist Socialism and the regular Socialism, you know, stuff like that. So they called everything fascist. But Umberto Eco, a, uh, I would like to explain him as the person that um, Paulo Coelho wished he was. Well, basically, he described uh, in 14 points what fascism even was. 
And um, yeah, I have to mention Lawrence Britt here, because he went through and did this from an economical standpoint and everything. But there's more to this, because Lawrence Britt's definition has been kind of countered in a lot of positions, and he's not as well known in the, well, political philosophy circles. But Umberto Eco, he stays relevant, because Eco grew up in under Mussolini's fascist regime, which, quoting him, was certainly a dictatorship, but it was not totally totalitarian. Not because of its mildness, but rather because of the philosophical weakness of its ideology. Contrary to common opinion, fascism in Italy, in Italy had no special philosophy. It's a thing. Continuing. It did, however, have its style. A way of dressing far more influential with his black shirts than in Marnie, Benetton, or Versace would ever be. And that's a dark comedy there. But this indicates a critical consensus about fascism. As a form of extreme nationalism, it ultimately takes on the contours of whatever national culture produces it. And so it happens with Russia today. It may seem to tax one word to make it account for so many different cultural manifestations of authoritarianism across Europe and even South America. Italy may have been the first right-wing dictatorship that took over a European country and got to name the political system, but uh, Eco is perplexed with, quote, why the word fascism became a synecdote, that is, a word that would be used for different totalitarian movements. For one thing, he writes, fascism was a fuzzy totalitarianism, a college of different philosophical and political ideas, a beehive of contradictions. This is the thing here. You can't really mess up fascism with Nazism. Nazism was its own thing, and I believe that socialism part of Nazism was very real. You might like not kind of agree with me, but I do believe that socialism played a huge part of national socialism. I do believe that this whole idea of socialism, well, it's a great idea on paper, but in practice, it always leads to human suffering, so anyone who claims that socialism is the way to go just wants you dead and wants to take away your cow. But that's my opinion, okay? That's how I view things, and, um, well, I'm sorry about that. You might call it communism. You might say it's not real socialism, but it is what it is, at least in my eyes. I believe that if someone wants to take away your private property and nationalize it, then that's bad. And that's socialism for me. Healthcare? Healthcare is not socialism. Just, Just saying. But we're here to discuss fascism. And we have 14 points which Umberto Eco, a philosopher that I deeply respect, calls fascism. And we're going to see how this applies to modern-day Russia. And, um, yeah, this actually could um, serve as a nice answer to the people who deem that um, Ukraine are Nazis, because they're not. Well then, let's take a look. The first point that Umberto Eco mentions is the cult of tradition. Quote, One has only to look at the syllabus of every fascist movement to find the major traditional thinkers. The Nazi ghosts was nourished by traditional syncretic occult elements. And the cult of tradition is easily seen in everything Russia does. They believe that their traditions are the best, that they are the only white nation for some reason, because, well, you know, they upkeep the idea that um, the whiteness is what determines the European nation. 
Although it's all based in economy, and well, well, we are nation states here, while the United States, for example, is not a nation state, but you've heard my views in previous episodes. The thing is that they make a cult of traditions. While I like to celebrate my national celebrations, these people make sure that everything that they do is bound to tradition, and Russia certainly does. They make their own traditions. They for some reason, claim the Soviet Union as their past, and even mix it with Tsarist Russia. Tradition is still extremely strong. That's the number one point. They have a cult of it. A religion, sort of. Which makes it all the weirder. Because, you know, some points here will be those which um, I would have kind of pointed out in other episodes, but, well, you know, if you listen enough to the show, you, you'll understand what I mean here. Because this cult of tradition, the fact that well, now, the Russian empire, Russian traditions, the Russianness is the most important part. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really matter to the people living there. See, another kind of sidetrack here. In normal democracies, the government is there for the people. In fascism, the people are there for the government. It's all in the name of some greater goal. But this greater goal does no benefit to the people at all. It's useless. The second point is the rejection of modernism. Quote, the Enlightenment, the age of reason, is seen as the beginning of modern depravity. In this sense, ur-fascism can be defined as irrationalism. Yes, this is exactly what Russia does. Russia denies anything good came out of, well, what we have now. It denies the public freedoms. It denies anything good brought up by Enlightenment and age of reason. It denies your public freedoms. You can see it in everywhere, the, how they censor their media, you can see it in how uh, they basically focus all their attention on how traditions were the best, how you should obey the Tsar, i.e. Putin, and how you should never turn away from that part. But modernism, all these newfangled things, just private liberties, oh no, 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 those are the evil things. Then we have the call of action for action's sake, point three. Quote, action being beautiful in itself, it must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. Just, it seems kind of stupid, but um, this is the evaluation of doing something. No matter what happens, no matter the conceptual value of it. Russia today is a country where basically everyone acts for its own sake. You must do something that'll splash out, that'll show off. That's what Putin did. I mean, he invaded Ukraine for this very reason. This is stupid, of course, but you must, you know, he started the war and he takes pride in it. That's the thing. He must do something just because doing something is a value in itself. Doesn't matter the economical connotations, doesn't matter like everything else he's done. He has to do it because action is his own thing. And that's all the weirder. Number four. Disagreement is treason. Quote, the critical spirit makes distinctions and to distinguish is a sign of modernism. If in modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. You'll need to look no further to basically understand that, um, yeah, to disagree with whatever Putin's saying is treason. Given the list of people that are harmful to the nation, list of people who are like, you know, disagreeing with whatever Putin has to say. All the independent journalists, everyone, they're made to 
basically step in line or step aside. He makes everyone agree with him. Absolute censorship. All the dependent media were closed down at the beginning of this war. What more do you need to know? There is no independent thought in Russia. Not publicly. It's not allowed. You're not allowed to think differently, comrade. Happiness is mandatory. In the bad sense of the word. Fear of difference. Quote, The first appeal of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement is an appeal against the intruders. Thus, ur-fascism is racist by definition. It's an absolute us-versus-them mentality. Russia hates Europe, hates America, hates Ukraine. It hates everyone that's not Russia. They hate people who think differently from them. They hate people who uh, decide to not follow Putin. That's what it means. If, if you're different from them, that is, you don't want to worship Putin as a savior, then they hate you. It is what it is. I mean, if uh, some people would like to basically criticize Putin a bit, then they'd go to prison for 15 years, no less. In modern Russia, the freedom of speech has been oppressed completely. But societies grow only because, well, we are allowed to disagree. I mean, if I would be living and growing up in a society that wouldn't be as free as, you know, modern-day Latvia, then I wouldn't be able to make this show. I'd be sent to prison. And I've been to Russian prison for like 10 days. This is the problem. Everyone who disagrees is a traitor, a criminal. If you disagree one yota with the Russian government, then you're done. And like, they've been showing this so many times. They poison Navalny, who is in disagreement with, with Putin. They use all sorts of tactics to do all this situation. Fear of difference. Yeah, this ties into the, the previous one. If you're not Russian, then you must disagree. And if you disagree, then you're not one of us. And um, this is where they have their bases. This is why they're sending Buryats and Tartars and everyone else to the front lines. This is why they're not basically sending their own, like, Russian people, Muscovites, to the front lines. It all ties in together. They think that the Russian people are the whitest and brightest of all peoples. It's not about patriotism. It's not about nationalism. Well, over here, nationalism has bad connotations. We speak of patriotism. Because we're Latvians here. We like our own country. We love it. Why? Because, well, there's so few of us that we really care about what's happening to you know, all of us. We're tied together. But I can't imagine that my country would ever invade someone. It's a thing that just would not happen. So weird. Meanwhile, in Russia, well, you've just seen this in open. Just listen to my previous episodes and you understand the fact that they are afraid that Ukrainians might be their own people. Perfectly fits in. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. 
Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There is number six, appeal to social frustration. One of the most typical features of the historical fascism was the appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from an economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation, and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. And this kind of makes sense because, well, you know, if you are the ur-followers of the central thesis of all this situation, if you are the Russian living in Moscow, then, well, if you're feeling worse, if you're kind of not happy about your situation, then you're not at fault. Someone else must be at fault. And uh, for Nazis, it was the Jews. It's obviously always the Jews. I mean, why not? <laughs> We've been uh, yelled at forever. And I'm only a technical Jew anyways. Like, my, my grandma was a Jew. Fine. So, but even then, even then I've been called a Jewish conspiracy theorist person. And I just use this to kind of show that it's really dumb. I mean, instead of fixing the economy and making sure everyone lives well, these guys blame someone else for their problems, and I've made jokes about this for a long time already. This is the thing where, you know, Obama, when back when he was president, Obama literally took a shit on your uh, kind of, you know, basement. Obviously, he made everything worse for you. You can't blame yourself, you can't blame your neighbors, you have to blame someone else. This is what Russia does on a global scale, and right now, 
they're doing it because according to them, Ukraine shot on their doorstep. Amazing. Number seven. The obsession with the plot. Quote, Thus, at the root of ur-fascist psychology, there is the obsession with a plot, possibly an international one. The followers must feel besieged. And here we come to the more critical signs of Russian fascism. They constantly state that the West are out to get them. The West, the mythical West, are trying to assault them. If you look at all the messages they've been sending out, it's us versus them mentality, constantly. They are, well, you know, everywhere. Evil Western powers, me and you, me producing this show, Anat editing this show, and you guys listening to this show, we're all in. All that we think about every day is definitely only about how we're going to put down Russia, specifically Putin. I mean, not even Russia, Russia itself. I mean, they can live all that I care about. I mean, but Putin, specifically Putin. Yeah, we're enemies of Putin. And that's kind of weird. Because in their eyes, we are the guys who are constantly thinking about how we will destroy this whole government. And that's what they try to give to their people. Which is always weird. Number eight. The enemy is both strong and weak. Quote, By a continuous shifting of rhetorical focus, the enemies are at the same time too strong and too weak. This is the first point where I have to like put a lot of attention here, because, well, we are all in Europe, according to Russian propaganda, liberal fascists. We, the West, the enemy of Russia, at the same time, too strong, because we disrupt Russia's economy, we hold too much power and too much dominance in economical affairs, and we are, you know, being very threatening and being very evil. However, at the same time, we're too weak to oppose the Russian spirit. This is how it works. We lack the willpower and focus to, you know, deal any real damage to, to Russian things. Weird mindset because you have to find this outside enemy. You have to find this weird situation where you're no longer completely in control of your country because you have to give way to these called kind of enemies and the conspiracies. Like, we're strong enough to do a conspiracy, but, you know, if we would be face on, then... Of course, we would be way too weak to oppose Russia. We can only fight against Russia because we're sneaky. You see, this sneakiness is the big issue here. It's kind of like, you know, the Jewish stereotypes of before. We're powerful when it comes to finance and dealings. But if a Russian man would punch us in the face, then we would break down easily because we are strong in our, you know, secret dealings, but weak in everything else. The problem is that, well, this also implies that, for one, United States. Yeah, yeah, sure. This is what they aim at. United States is strong in their business dealings. But this is why, well, United States is a nuclear threat. But each individual United States soldier is a weakling and a pussy. And I'm sorry for swearing in this episode, but kind of to show the point here. That's the issue here. And they, they do it, because they don't even mind this, and this happens even, like, this has happened before it was very, very openly seeable in the, in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, because, well, Japanese were, at the same time, weak invaders who will be easily crushed by Western Russian civilization, and at the same time, they were a massive threat to the Western civilization as a whole, and if we don't stop them, no one will. 
It's a paradoxical situation, but it helps explain a lot of what Ukraine is going through. So, Ukraine currently is a weak country going through reforms and being a slave to the West. At the same time, the West supports it and it's strong militarily. It doesn't need to make any sense. It doesn't need to make any sense. It is what it is and, well, that's how they justify their own actions after all. Number nine, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. Quote, for Ur-Fascism, there is no struggle for life, but rather, life is lived for struggle. This is the thing. If you want to be a peaceful person, just, you know, minding your own business, building, building your own business, this is evil. Because, well, if you're not hating the enemies of your country with terrible passion, then, um, well, you're wrong. And this, by the way, is a thing that I kind of state that while the United States can't be really, you know, fascist. At least not in the current form. And some people might hate me for it because I know that there are some listeners of the show who actually think the United States are fascist, but this really breaks it. Because this means not dealing with the enemy. And you guys in the States, well, if I had to pick something, you're the most mercantile nation on the planet Earth. You guys like to make the deal. And deal is kind of involved with pacifism. Trafficking with the enemy. Well, yeah, you guys will traffic with anyone. You guys will make deals. You make deals with me. For, for some unknown reason, you still want to support the show. Also, please do support the show at patreon.com slash border or just click a money button on at eastern underscore border or Twitter. But you guys are friendly. You guys want to make the best deal. Fascism is opposed of making any deals. And like, if you're not supporting this war currently in Russia, then your apartment will get blown off. Your apartment will be, get tarnished. Then things will be crazy. Number 10. Content for the weak. Elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology. Yeah. Russians think currently, and Putin presents it, that he has to be the best. He has to be the most amazing. That's the thing. This is why, well, Putin does all this thing. If you're not perfect Russian, then you're not invited. And, you know, they also make this very idea that in their own, you know, private shootings of, of pictures and private avenues. If you're not ethnically Russian, then you're not invited at all. Number 11. Everybody is educated to become a hero. Quote, In old fascist ideology, heroism is the norm. This cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death. And this happens also in non-fascist societies. I mean, it's a big role in Latvia. I mean, our national hero also sacrificed himself for the greater good. But in fascist countries, they make this idea that you must die for the government, and the government is everything and you are nothing, really kind of flows through everything. And this is why we have this weird celebration of 9th of May, which is not the memorial of the dead ones. This is a celebration of Russian imperialism. Everyone is educated to become a hero, even in the school time. The Russian kids get taught in schools that dying for their own country is the best thing ever. And that's made the ultimate virtue. What you make in life, what you create in life, doesn't matter. If you're a nobody, if you have nothing, as long as you can die for Putin's cause in this war, then, well, <laughs> then you can get away from all this situation. Because dying for your own country is apparently the greatest goal one could achieve. Number 12, 
Machismo and weaponry. Quote, Machismo implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits from chastity to homosexuality. And this is it. I mean, this is the number one spot because in Russian society there is this attitude of Babi Novich Narajayat. So, doesn't matter if your kids die in a war. What matters is that your ladies will just, you know, they'll just basically spawn some more kids that'll go into the war lines and front lines. This is what happened. And they um, hate gay people. If you look at Chechnya, a part of Russia, they have concentration camps for gay people. And there is no more homophobic country on planet Earth, maybe except North Korea, than Russia. I would like to live in a society where we just don't care about whatever you do in the, in the bedroom. But these people claim it to be not according to our values. It's just crazy. And this is what it is. You have to be this super macho man who's ready to die for his own country. You have to be this guy. Selective analysis? You know, thinking about what you're going to do? No, no, no. None of that is necessary. Number 13. Selective populism. Quote, There is not a future a TV or internet populism in which the emotional response of a selected group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. And this is it. Again, Putin is doing exactly that. I mean, he presents voice of the people to the people. All the Russian TV consists of nothing but, you know, praise for Putin and his government. At the same time, the everything opinions are being smashed down. So, well, of course, nobody wants to admit that they're wrong or something, but this is where Russia has the most faults. I mean, I've been following Yuri Gerkin and Solovyov for all this time. Populism is in the roots of everything. It's just crazy. But in the end, it was the 14th point that really struck me as the most most touching of all the situation. Quote, Ur fascism speaks newspeak. Quote, All the Nazi or fascist schoolbooks make use of an impoverished vocabulary and elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. And this is what they do. They make everything super simple. They apply simple solutions for complex problems. This is the Ur fascism. If you see a newspeak, then you know that this is probably it. This is fascism. This is what they do. Everything is a new speak. Everything is just made to sound like, you know, this whole new reality has become a thing. Which is just a bit crazy. But, well, if it sounds like it's too weird to be true, then it probably is. New speak situation, I'm pretty sure none of uh, the European listeners that listen to my show who've been informed about Russian propaganda will disparage this fact, but there's a ton of newspeak. Putin uses a lot of elements from old fascist propaganda and they change the words and the meanings of them. They don't say an explosion, they say a blast. For, for example, you know, when I told you about the explosions in Belograd, the Russian media presented this as basically chlapoks or, or blasts. They don't say explosion, they say blast. They don't say, well person who's acted wrong, they say person with a lowered social responsibility. They don't say war, they say special military operation. This newspeak influences the way how you think. And it matters a lot. So they're kind of vague things, really. So, um, 
I'll give you a short list of, well, Jordan Brits as well, because although I, well, he's more concrete because this is a philosophical list. That one is more practical, but just a short overview so that you would know. But in all, this should be enough. Putin is running a fascist government, by all means. But hey, have another list, just so we can check. Although that's uh, that's a bit money if you want. So like I said, when people think about 14 points, there are two lists. One is Umberto Eco's one, which is more philosophical, and then is Lawrence Britt's one, which is more practical. And Lawrence Britt states that, point one, powerful and continuing nationalism. Definitely check with Russia. It's very self-obvious. They're super nationalistic. Number two, disdain for the recognition of human rights. Um, in Russia, they literally, you know, made it kind of... They made their own courts supreme over the International Court of Human Rights. That alone shows this. Number three, identification of enemies slash scapegoats in a unifying cause. Yeah, this is the same as Umberto Eco. They blame the West for everything. Number four, supremacy of the military. Still happening... All the time. Military power, specifically the victory in the World War II, which has given them a carte blanche, according to themselves, is what's happening over there. Number five, rampant sexism. Um, let me tell you that this is still... Like, they literally decriminalized domestic violence in 2018. I made an episode about the situation. Sexism and being a huge man, a man's man, me, even a journalist who has been to war zones and who's actively working, not man enough. Number six, controlled mass media. Won't even comment on this one. Very obvious, there is no non-controlled mass media over there. Number seven, obsession with national security. Yep, always happening. NATO expansion and Westerners who are somehow obsessed with Putin saving face all fall into this situation because everyone who says that Putin needs to be, you know, face saved is a dumb fuck and I hate them personally. Number eight, religion and government are intertwined. 100%. I've been telling you in multiple episodes about how, well, chief of the Orthodox Church, the Patriarch Kirill, who used to be a KGB agent, same thing. Corporate power is protected. And this needs to be a bit of explaining. This means that, well, the corporates are the only people that the government makes alliances with. And then, well, standard situations, the corporates ally themselves with the government to not lose power. Meanwhile, in Putin's Russia, he did the other way around. He basically created all the corporates by imprisoning the corporates he didn't like and placed his own relatives and friends on this thing. Still, this means corporate power is protected, just a bit in a different way. Still works. Number 10. Labor power is suppressed. Yes, trade unions are very much fought against in Russia. All the time. Constantly. You can't change anything about it. Number 11. Disdain for intellectuals and the arts. Absolutely. This happened also in the Soviet Union. Still happens in modern-day Russia. If you somehow decide to be smarter than the bunch, then you must be a traitor and an evil person at all times. Number 12. Obsession with crime and punishment. Oh, abs absolutely. This is crazy and this is just awesome because they deem everyone criminal. Everyone who even fights against them, as you have seen with people who defended those of style, they also criminals. Number 13. Rampant cronyism and corruption. Um, Russia's a kleptocracy. And, and well, that's about it. Again, listen to my previous episodes. You can hear all the supporting arguments for all this before. And number 14 on, on, on like, his list is fraudulent elections. <sighs> yeah, there's a reason why we call them Putin's elections anyway. So, 
by both lists, even though I like Humberto Eco's lists more, and even by Lawrence Brett's list, Russia is fascist. Absolutely fascist. Putin's Russia is checking out all the hallmarks of being a fascist government. And it's kind of crazy. And it's madness. And then, then you know, people in control, they, they like to blame Ukraine for this. We in Eastern Europe are afraid because we have a fascist government next to us. We hate this fascist government because we would like to, you know, not to live under fascism. Fascism, socialism, same thing for me, really. In the end, it's a government that cares about the government, not about the people. This is the government where happiness is mandatory. And if you don't like the happiness, then you go to prison. But what matters is that the real happiness actually becomes mandatory, not the fake one. But now you know. Now you're informed. And I hope that this episode was interesting enough for you. At any rate, please consider becoming our patrons on patreon.com slash border and all the other usual things that we mention about. Donate to Ukraine. And always remember, happiness is mandatory. До свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. 